0: Lauren. Mike. Have you ever jailbroken an iPhone?
1: No, but I have repaired my own iPhone. There was a period of time where I broke two iPhones in a row, shattered the screen, and I, I like, bought an iFixit kit and repaired the screen myself. Nice. I felt pretty good about that.
0: Nice. Even though you voided your warranty?
1: Sure. That's what they tried to tell you.
0: <laughs> have you ever jailbroken a tractor?
1: Unfortunately, I have not had the opportunity to jailbreak or repair a tractor.
0: Oh, well... Somebody might be able to help you, so we should talk about it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired.
1: And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: We're also joined this week once again by Wired senior writer, Lily Hay Newman. Lily, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So even if you aren't a farmer, you have probably heard of John Deere. The company makes tractors and the kinds of big equipment that farmers use to plow their fields and harvest their crops. And in recent years, farming has gotten very tech savvy. We're talking about autonomous navigation and Wi-Fi and touchscreens and everything. And John Deere has really been at the front of this trend. John Deere has also been controversial for keeping all of this tech proprietary, meaning if something breaks, you've got to call in a John Deere technician to fix it. The company has become a lightning rod for advocates in the right to repair movement who argue that people should be empowered to fix their own stuff if they want to without having to go to a certified and therefore more expensive repair center. We'll get into repairability in the second half of the show, but first let's talk about John Deere specifically. Now, Lily, you wrote a story for Wired this week about a hacker who demonstrated how to gain full control of a John Deere tractor by bypassing the company's built-in software. This hack was shown off at DEFCON, which is a conference that's a premier venue for this type of thing. So quickly tell us, to set the scene a little bit, what is DEFCON and what typically happens there?
2: DEFCON is a information security and digital privacy research conference, (laughs) but like a really, really fun, wild one where hackers... And researchers descend on Las Vegas to show off their findings, hacking all manner of applications and real things like tractors, but also like medical
1: devices, pacemakers, satellites, just, I guess, literally the sky's the limit. And so what happened this year at DEF CON with a hacker named SickCodes?
2: SickCodes has done some John Deere-related hacking in the past and hacking of services from other tractor manufacturers, but in the past, he had worked on research related to hacking systems like application programming interfaces and like web services related to how the tractors connect up or sync up with bigger services from the companies. And this year, he said he wanted to really put his money where his mouth was. And he demonstrated a full jailbreak of a tractor, meaning full control, root access to do whatever he wanted with the tractor. And as he described it, root access is very rare in deer land. <laughs>
0: This is because like John Deere probably has a pretty robust security team that keeps everything locked down pretty hard.
2: I would say it's because primarily of security through obscurity that the systems are, you know, proprietary, as you said, and so, so locked down. And there's such an interest from the company And as you said, this is true of other tractor manufacturers, too. There's such an interest in not letting anybody see how the sausage is made or see inside the black box that it's just sort of complicated and time consuming and difficult and not a ton of people have done exactly
1: what he did. So I would say that's that's the reason. And what was Sick Code's goal? Because he told you when you spoke to him that. The folks who are typically on the side of right to repair, the idea that you should just be able to crack open and repair everything you own, that they were a little bit opposed to what he was trying to do because one of the farmers said to him, like, you're effing up all of our stuff. But it seemed like maybe because he is a white hat hacker, he was trying to expose something for the broader good. What was he hoping to get from this?
2: Yeah, I I think it's a really important question and just something he's exploring, too. In the past, his research into those web services that I talked about was really focused on revealing security vulnerabilities because of concerns about food security in the world and about like farmers' businesses and the fact that they need to be able to pull stuff out of the ground at the right time, as he put it. So he was looking at this more as John Deere and other tractor manufacturers their stuff isn't actually that secure. And he was feeling really concerned about that. Like what happens if there's a ransomware attack against a giant agriculture conglomerate? We've already seen, for example, the ransomware attack against JBS Meat last year that really messed with the meat supply chain. And that was like the largest global meat producer, one of the largest uh, so, these, you know, attacks against agriculture are real, like that, it's really possible that that could happen. And so he was coming at it from the perspective of feeling concerned about the digital security of these systems. But as you're saying, a lot of the feedback was from farmers who take advantage of these same vulnerabilities that hackers could take advantage of. They use them to gain more access, more control over these devices and vehicles that they bought, that they own, that is sitting in their field. It's interesting. It's like a reliability question from the other side where they're looking at it as the more control we have over our devices and the easier it is for us to make repairs ourselves, the more reliable our vehicles will be. You know, so if something happens... In the field, and you're in the middle of your big moment to harvest. You can just do a quick repair, or change the setting, or you know, adapt the way you need to, uh, and have reliability that way. So, this tension is really interesting because, and comes up in other devices and other you know sectors as well. It's not just related to tractors. This question of closing vulnerabilities so hackers can exploit them. But then what does that mean about good actors' uh, ability to use those same vulnerabilities for their own benefit?
1: And you bring up a good point about agriculture in particular and how much those harvest windows matter to farmers. I have heard from farmers. I've sat in on these briefings that are often hosted by uh, Right to Repair advocates, the US Public Interest Research Group, um, where they've had farmers come forth and tell their stories about their inability to repair their tractors and what that means. If they have to go to some kind of authorized dealer or they have to go to someone who does John Deere repair specifically because they've been authorized by John Deere, and how that just takes a lot of time out of, it could take days, weeks, months, And you've missed your harvest season. I mean, for a lot of people, that's a matter of like having food, you know, like having the finances to support their farm. Like it can actually be quite a big deal. Not to mention that when you go to one of those authorized dealers or repair shops or back to John Deere itself, that that means they can command a certain price from you.
2: Right, exactly. And I think when it comes to the global food supply, it's that farmer or that bit, you know, that agriculture business. And then it's also just all of us, right? We all are getting food from that process. So mm-hmm. it is like a global security issue, but also there's this global security issue of the digital security of these vehicles and the uh, web systems that you know underlie them. And I, they're just both important concerns and there's potential disruption on both sides.
0: John Deere has been a very high profile target for hackers recently. There was a, you know, as you said, there was a, a John Deere hack at DEFCOD last year. The company has been at the forefront of like autonomous tractor technology. What did the company have to say about this latest drop from sick codes?
2: In fact, I was just checking in my email to make sure I wasn't telling you all the wrong thing, but I reached out to John Deere and checked multiple times, and I haven't heard anything from them. I, I haven't heard any comment for, for my story. So that seems to be where they're at right now. One thing I would say...
1: <laughs> uh, I say that often about my dating life. <laughs> <laughs> Has that person gotten back to you in a few days? No, that seems to be where they're at right now. <laughs> it's a complicated
2: one. The attack involves physical access, so which is just to say that it can't Just be exploited remotely over the Mm -hmm. internet right now Mm -hmm. to just like brick all the tractors or something. You have to be physically with the tractor to do the jailbreak, which is okay for farmers because that's their tractors, but you know, reduces like the immediate risk that thousands of tractors are going to be attacked by hackers. But on the other hand, it's like it is total access, total control, and because Gloria, as you were saying, John Deere has been on the forefront of all these sort of interconnected systems and subscription services and all different types of features that are now in these tractors. There is a lot of internet connectivity that is part of this, and there's potential that these things could be, uh, other vulnerabilities could come up that could be chained together with some of these findings in new ways. So there is some potential for remote access, but the, the fixes are gonna be difficult, especially in existing vehicles that are out there now. They're, there's not like, oh, we'll just send a patch or something. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of findings here. So as I said, I haven't heard from John Deere, but CIC Code's his evaluation of it was that it, there isn't sort of one simple fix.
0: All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will plow ahead with more. The right to repair movement goes well beyond high-tech tractors. Companies like Apple, Google, and Samsung have recently bowed to pressure to make their devices more repairable. They've rolled out programs that let people buy the parts and tools they need for simple phone repairs, things like replacing a cracked screen or a dead battery. Of course, people have always figured out ways to do these things on their own, but the big change here is that the phone makers are now sanctioning these repairs so that people can do them with official parts. And since they're doing it with permission, they can crack open their phone without automatically voiding its warranty. These repair programs from Apple and Samsung and Google have all launched this year, and they haven't been perfect, but they're at least something, which is good. Lily, what are some of the pressures that led to these companies loosening up their repair policies?
2: In recent years, and as sort of especially in the the past 18 months, there has started to be a turning point, at least, you know, from the. US government that is pushing some of this or creating more momentum. The White House had an executive order on right to repair last year, and the Federal Trade Commission, committed to expanding their enforcement, especially when it comes to these situations where a company is saying you void your warranty if you get repairs, you know, from an unauthorized repair person or something like that. And then very recently, New York State passed the first uh, state right to repair related law. So there's definitely sort of a a momentum going on. And, you know, I, I think there's been some
1: writing on the wall for the companies We should also note, too, that the whole idea of warranties in many cases, not in all cases, is kind of bullshit. (laughs)
0: How so? (laughs) Well,
1: because in the United States, there's something that's known as the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, which was passed in Congress in 1975, that created uh, limitations or restrictions around how manufacturers could use disclaimers on warranties and US PERG, who I mentioned earlier, they've done some research into this in recent years where they've come up with a list of manufacturers who would put stickers on things, like think gaming consoles or even your refrigerator that says like warranty voided if tampered with, that actually like are illegal. Like they're not supposed to use that phrasing and they're not supposed to indicate that you would not be able to get your device repaired for free or without charge. If you happen to try to fix it yourself. Um, so the the whole warranty thing is very, is very delicate. And so I don't think we should operate under the assumption that like if you try to repair your own iPhone, then you're breaking some sort of warranty. I think part of the reason why we are starting to finally see change around right to repair is because there's just that much pressure from like grassroots advocacy that has led to state bills, which in two instances has actually led to state laws. And now there's actually pressure at the federal level, too. There was this real moment for the right to repair movement last summer when President Joe Biden issued this directive for the FTC to draft new regulations around right to repair. And those regulations would limit manufacturers' ability to restrict repair. And then a couple weeks later, the FTC voted unanimously to enforce right to repair laws. So there are several states that currently um, have introduced bills this year For right to repair, or they've carried over from prior years. But I think the federal attention last year really was like what pushed this over the edge.
0: Yeah. And I think beyond that, you know, because it's in the public conversation, because the president is talking about it, and because people are reading about it in places like Wired and other publications that cover technology, like people are reading this and they're getting frustrated that they just can't fix these things themselves. Right. You know, a lot of people grew up fixing their own bicycle, fixing their own car. Fixing their own computer. And now all of a sudden they're buying computers that are like hermetically sealed and filled with glue that they can't fix themselves. And that frustrates them because they know how to and they know where to get the parts and they should be able to, but they just can't because of some weird Mm -hmm. reason. It comes down to a power struggle. I think people push back instinctively against oppression in that way. (laughs) I mean, not capital O oppression, but, you know, lowercase. Capital C
1: capitalism. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I mean, it really has forced a philosophical conversation about what do we own? Because everything we buy now, I shouldn't say everything, but many things we buy now are both hardware and software or they're hardware devices that have services, you know, layered on top of them that are sort of critical to using the thing. We talked about this recently because of the BMW news that mm. uh, I think the verge reported on that they were going to be charging for seat heaters yes and that Tesla will soon be charging for navigation services it might no, might no longer be free on your tablet. So in the car world, you think about like, okay, if I purchase the car, what do I actually own if there are all these software elements to it? And I'm either paying a subscription for them or I have no control over that software. So it's really forced us to think deeply about what it means to quote unquote own something versus what's being licensed or rented or yeah, because of software, because software. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing about the change that
2: has happened historically with things like cars and tractors I'm not an expert on this, but I get the sense that one thing that has driven like the classic car boom is that people love repairing classic cars because they can. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's no computers in them, and it's like an actual tangible thing that you can really put your hands on. And the same for tractors. You know, One of the reasons farmers are so dedicated to classic tractors and older tractors is because they just don't have any of this bullshit in them, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, so they can just own them and repair them and sell them to others and buy new ones and do whatever. And there's no subscription services, there's no anything. And there's just a real satisfaction. And like we were talking about, a reliability that comes from that. Mm-hmm. that you don't feel worried that you're going to have to figure out how to like get your tractor somewhere or schedule with a certain repair person and it might be costly and just a problem, you know, in in your in your harvest schedule or whatever you have going on, you know you have full control and that you can be self-sufficient or you know sufficient within your community. So that that all makes a lot of sense to me and Mm -hmm. really resonates. And also just to tie it in, is really in keeping with the hacker ethos and you know hacker ideals about hardware hacking as well as in the software
1: Mm -hmm. realm. And I could see why the sick codes hack really could present a conundrum for the right to repair side, because if the opponents of right to repair have long said this could create security issues, security and safety issues, sometimes they'll say, we don't want you replacing your own battery because you could buy a cheap battery and there could be a thermal runway and start a fire. But sometimes it's, you know, the bad actors could get into your devices then and get your personal information. That's one of the big arguments. And oftentimes groups you know, like securerepairs.org um, or even the FTC, when they issued their report last May, would come out and say, yeah, we, we do believe those security fears are overblown. Mm-hmm. But then if you have like a bunch of hackers descending upon a conference in Vegas and saying, look how easy it is to crack these things open. It's like, oh, well, actually, <laughs> maybe it's not so overblown. Yeah. yeah and and something
2: like cars I, I mean we've seen both famously in wired and elsewhere that uh, you know remote car hacking is real That's right our famous jeep story Yeah the Jeep hack and even maybe more critically with something like tractors or farm equipment because of the food security issue we were talking about one thing someone told me once is that the reason I think it was Maybe around the time of the Jeep hack or something, and you know, I was interviewing someone and saying like, "Wow, car hacks! Like that's really scary." Because like, what if you're in a car? And <laughs> and they said, you know, the thing about it though is there isn't really a business model to just like randomly killing you in your car. Like that, you, you can't make money <laughs> off Lauren off of just like killing you in your car. But the global food supply thing and, you know, the ransomware attacks or sort of disruptive attacks in the context of geopolitical conflict or you, you that to me seems like a much more tempting or sort of high profile target where we can really see what the immediate disruptive impacts of attacking the global agriculture system would be. So... I think what Sick codes was trying to get at and, and the, the discussion you know in the discourse at Defcon was really around like how can everyone get on the same side? Ideally, there wouldn't be such a controversy and conflict about right to repair, and then everyone would really be able to be on the same side about patching these vulnerabilities, building more secure systems so that there isn't a threat from hacking.
0: All right. Well, this has been elucidating, but we have to take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. All right. Here we are at the last segment of our show, where we go around the room and we ask everybody to recommend a thing. That they like that our listeners might also enjoy. Lily, as our guest, you get to go first. What is your recommendation?
2: Oh wow, I'm first. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. My,
2: <laughs> my recommendation is N95 masks.
0: (laughs) Spoken like somebody who just attended a couple of conferences.
2: (laughs) Yes. uh, I just attended three conferences in a row. Some had mask mandates, some didn't. A lot of people I know who took extensive precautions did get COVID. So, and I I don't, you know, this isn't to say masks are foolproof and sort of famous last words, like what if I test positive later today (laughs) or something, Mm. but... So far, so good. And I just really felt good having some type of concrete action I could take in a mad world. So big ups to N95 masks.
0: Do you have a preferred brand or color?
2: I do. The masks I wear are the Kimberly Clark Professional N95 Pouch Respirator. They are... The ones that look like duck bills—they are white. They are—I—I can't—I'm I, having trouble even verbalizing how unattractive they are, <laughs> and yet. They are my recommendation because in that duckbill, in the pouch, you get like a good amount of air and it's not right up against your face. You don't have that. I, I was sort of putting my hand up to my face as I said that. So you don't have that claustrophobic feeling and just sort of out of breath feeling from them, or at least I don't. And yeah, they're just very comfortable. Maybe they're not for everyone because of the aesthetic. Issue, which I'm acknowledging up front here. But for me, they are my recommendation because they're just very comfortable. And at this point in the pandemic, I just cannot be bothered. Like, whatever is comfortable
1: (laughs) is what I want to be
2: wearing.
1: Nice. That's a great recommendation. Lily, thank you for helping our affiliate link business because we are going to link to those in the show notes. <laughs> it is my absolute pleasure.
0: Now I have to read the disclaimer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Lauren, what is your recommendation?
1: My recommendation this week is an interview in the New Yorker with Ocean Vong. He is the author of the poetry collection, Night Sky with Wounds, and a lot of people will know him for his novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. This Q&A was actually from the spring, but I came across it because our old friend Nick Thompson, who used to be our editor-in-chief at Wired, and now he's the CEO of the Atlantic Media Company... He still has time to be like a LinkedIn influencer and stuff. <laughs> a LinkedIn <laughs> he, influencer. A LinkedIn influencer, and he sends out these newsletters regularly, saying, "Here are all the things that I'm reading when I'm not running 100 miles up a mountain." And I think he did a 40 mile run recently. Sorry, Nick, I don't mean to misstate that. But he recommended this as one of in one of his reading lists recently, and it's it's really just it's long and it's thoughtful. And I found it really inspiring. Wong uh, talks about his mother, who inspired much of his work and who passed away in 2019. Talks about his approach to writing and how he always feels like a student. He talks about writing in Popeyes in Manhattan. Like he talks about the difference between going to a coffee shop to write where everyone is writing something and you can look over and see people working on screenplays and doing track changes and all that versus being in a Popeyes where people are just in and out, in and out, and no one's really just sitting there doing work and how he enjoys that. He talks about his current uh, family dynamic and taking care of his younger brother. He used the word capacious in this really beautiful way, (laughs) which I really (laughs) like. Uh, Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed it. And as a writer, I found it inspiring. So I recommend reading that. Nice. Mike, what's your recommendation this week?
0: My recommendation is that everybody should go listen to the music of Patrice Rushen.
1: Okay, tell us about this.
0: That's Patrice Rushen, R-U-S-H-E-N. Patrice Russian is like an R&B jazz person. Uh, her main instrument is the keyboard. So she plays like piano and synthesizers and stuff, but she also produces and arranges and plays a bunch of different instruments. She sort of hit her stride in the late 1970s. There are three albums in particular, Shout It Out, Patrice, and "Pizzazz," which I think are all just masterpieces. But the thing is, like, Patrice Russian is one of those people who, if you're into you know kind of funky jazz stuff and like funky r&b uh people like stevie wonder and uh, herbie hancock and diana ross and um you know like disco music you may have heard patrice russian songs but she hasn't really gotten the do that i feel like she deserves uh she's Mm under the radar. She's had a very successful career. She's won Grammys, but she's not a household name in the same way that people like Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross are, right? So I'm really trying to give her some love and turn more people onto her music. So I've been putting her music on playlists that I share with people. I've been been sending it around. And universally, people are like, who is this? I've never heard of this person. All of her records are amazing. So I want to say it here on the show that uh, you should listen to Patrice Russian. She's really awesome.
1: I am going to rush into listening to that. (laughs) You should. (laughs) (laughs) Can I add two addendums to our recommendations this week? Sure. The first is that a couple of weeks ago, I recommended a sunscreen. Um, from CeraVe, 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 uh-huh. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. And I said it was French yeah. and it's actually made in the States. Oh, It's probably made at some lab in New Jersey. And here I'm going, it's French Yeah, because it sounds vaguely French.
0: Because that's how you sell sunscreen.
1: So I had to issue that correction. Okay. Does your recommendation for the sunscreen still stand? It does still stand. Absolutely. And it still makes your face like really sort of ghostly looking because it's mineral sunscreen. <laughs> still, I recommend it. <laughs> My second addendum is that last week Mike I said I was never taking a recommendation from you again after you recommended The Northman. That's right. But you recommended that I watch the season finale of season 3 of Atlanta. Yes. I had not watched Atlanta in a long time, but I just I just dove right in and watched the season finale of of season 3. It was so good. <laughs> it was it was just fantastic and I recommend everyone watch it and Uh, You made up for it, so thank you. I I look forward
0: to recommending lots of Alexander Skarsgård related media
1: to you in the future. Honestly, wasn't even about (laughs) Skarsgård. Like, (laughs) just the episode is so good, and the and those of you watch this will know the the dropping of the vase was like. I mean, I was I was crying laughing. It was so so funny. This is
0: to be clear. If you don't, if if it's not at the tip of your tongue, this is the episode that takes place in Paris. Yes. Yeah. When Vanessa's friends come to visit her in Paris.
1: Right. And Vanessa has all of a sudden turned into some Amelie. She's she's a fake French person. She's a fake fake French with a fake French accent.
0: Probably sells sunscreen.
2: (laughs) I was just about to do the callback. Thank you, Mike.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Always here to serve. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on the show, Lily. It was great to have you on again.
2: Yeah, it's always fun to be here. Thanks, Lily. It was so much fun.
0: And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. And until then, goodbye. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.